This morning, if you would open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you need a Bible this morning in the back of the pew in front of you, you should find one. And in the front of that, you'll find an index. And that'll help get you to the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians. One of the most difficult things to do in this particular book of the Bible is follow the thread. Many of the passages in the last few months that we've looked at in chapters 4, 5, 6, all the way into 7 are the types of passages that people memorize, the types of passages that people lay a finger on and say, this, this took hold of me, this changed my life. But they're all in this context of an argument. Uh, and that's, that's the way Paul thinks. It's the way he writes as an author. He lays out bit by bit, piece by piece. And usually that is incredibly helpful. I mean, his letter to Romans is an exposition on salvation that reads like a beautifully written uh, textbook on salvation from a Christian perspective. But 2 Corinthians is different. 2 Corinthians is much more personal. He uses the personal pronoun I more than all of his other letters combined in this letter. He's dealing with some personal things, and it has to do with his relationship with the Corinthian church. And so following that thread, because he's not just talking about Jesus, not just laying out these things, but also making an explanation and a defense of his ministry, it's easy to lose the connective tissue between. But effectively, what he has been trying to show is that there's a direct correlation between his ministry and the work God is doing in the world, which is why at some times he sounds a little bit crazy, because he's trying to do this in a way that doesn't come off as uh, insane. And by the time we get to the end of the letter, this will become really clear, and he finally goes, okay, gloves are off. You want me to just lay it out on the table? You want me to boast? Let me tell you what my life is like. And he just just lets loose and explains what it's really like to be the Apostle Paul. But right now, he's working through, and it's very intentional, but he's laid out some super important things that God has done in Jesus Christ. And so earlier, back in chapter 3, he talked about the ministry of the new covenant. That what God had done in the Old Testament had in some ways come to a new expression, a new covenant. And that Paul had been called as a minister of that. And so he, he held up the ministry of Moses in the Old Testament and then he looked at what was happening in the church now and he brought them together and at the same time brought them to contrast. Um, as we saw last week, he takes this idea of creation from the very beginning of the Bible and slaps the word new on it and says that's what God is doing now. You're a new creation. Here, he moves it into reconciliation and we're not going to directly deal with how this touches base, but there's a reason why this is the final argument before he starts to come to his conclusion. It's because 
Paul's relationship with this church he planted in Corinth is estranged. It's difficult. And his fear for them is, as we'll see, that they don't recognize that what's brought them reconciliation to God is God's ministry through Paul. And so his fear is that by walking away from Paul, not because he has some sort of ego or agenda, but just because he recognizes uh, what's really going on, walking away from Paul, they may really be walking away from the true living God who saved them. Okay? And so that's why he uses this concept of reconciliation. And that's why he talks about it this morning. And I just wanted to lay that on the table. Um, we'll see more of this in weeks to come. I just didn't want to miss the thread here. But for us this morning, we're going to look at another change that we see in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and this is that it changes our relationship with God. And that word relationship is going to become very important because there's lots of ways the Bible talks about salvation that are um, inherently impersonal. They're usually not impersonal to us because we experience them, but they're impersonal as in they don't connect this idea of salvation with this idea of relationship between us and God. And so one of the words that Paul likes to use in many places is justification. That there is uh, a, um, a legal consequence to sin that stands against us that, if, that we are guilty and that what God has done in Jesus Christ removes that guilt. Do you hear how objective that is? Okay, it's... It's talking about law and failure to comply and removal of that and a changing of sentence. Okay? And that's absolutely true, and it's totally essential to understand. In fact, we can't really talk about what we're going to talk about today without referencing that. But when he uses the word reconciliation, he makes it inherently personal. Not not merely doctrinal, not merely just positional. That's a word that theologians like to use. It's not just a change in position that we experience in Jesus, not just a change in the way God sees us, but in the way God relates to us and we relate to God. That's what the word reconciliation brings up. So let's read the passage together, picking up here in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray.
God, I pray that you would work into our hearts this morning the truths of your word. I know that what you call us to is not merely to know or to assent, but to uh, believe in, to trust in, to act on, to live in. And for that, we need your help. So I ask God that your spirit would be active in working this morning just as you promised, and we would come to know relationally the living God who loves us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was reflecting on this word reconciliation this week, and it came to me that now the primary place we use this term is very broad. Racial reconciliation, for example. We recognize that there are massive parts of our society that are estranged, that are alienated, that are separated, that are divided. And so we use this word reconciliation, but it's important because of that fact that we keep in mind that that never happens apart from actual people relating to actual other people. That it's not something that happens merely at the conceptual level or at the broad societal level. That it may happen a thousand times over and lead to a cultural transformation, but it happens personally. The word reconciliation is personal. And so, what is the opposite of this? If this is what God has done in Jesus Christ, where do we start Listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Paul here, writing to the church in Ephesus specifically, is speaking to people like most of us, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. He's talking about what life was like for us before Jesus in the broadest of terms. And this is what he says. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separated, alienated, strangers without God. Okay. Do you hear how all of those involve relationships? The one that I want to point you to as being primarily important, because if we were to look for one to tilt the scales, to balance the scales with reconciliation, it would be that word alienation. That's what Paul says. He says, apart from Christ, we were alienated from God. I'll give you another another phrase that Paul likes to use, okay? Because sometimes, well, let's just move to this other, other phrase, okay? When Paul talks about how we behave in relationship to God, he likes to use the word rebel. He says, while we were rebelling against God, while we were the enemies of God. In fact, another thing he says in Ephesians is he says that there was enmity against God. Not just that we were born on the wrong team, Not just that we were born, you know, like the Haddocks and the McCoys. It's not the Haddocks, it's the Hatfields. No war with fish, that's dumb. Um, The Hatfields and the McCoys. Not like we just were born into it, or Romeo and Juliet, but that we internally, by choice, stand against God. Alienation. 
And the thing we have to understand from this this morning, in fact, listen to this. It's not so much said as underlying what's said, but listen to what he says again here in verse 18. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And listen to this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice here that he can't talk about this alienation or this estrangement without mentioning this idea of sin. And the word he uses here for trespass is the one that speaks of intentionality, okay? Which is weird because uh, when I hear this word, I think of, of stuff that can be accidental, like there's a line, you're not supposed to cross it, and you, you, you trip and you fall into it. Uh, the word here is more like seeing a trespass sign clearly posted, reading it, stopping, thinking, and then crossing the fence. In the Old Testament, there's multiple words for sin. The one that Paul is drawing attention to here is the one uh, that it, the book of Numbers calls high-handed sin. Where you know what you're not supposed to do, or you know what you're supposed to do, and you rebelliously go a different way. Okay. But here's the thing that we have to understand here. According to the Bible, God takes sin personally. Right? That has to be the implication. If we're going to talk about the restoring of a relationship because of the dealing with sin, that means the relationship is broken because of sin. This is significant. Because oftentimes we think, whatever you think about what is right or what is wrong, we think about it in an objective and somewhat distant way. We break the law. We don't necessarily rebel against our creator. But when you read the Old Testament and the New, you discover something about sin that we just don't naturally think about, which is that sin pains God. Just read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I'll tell you what they're there for. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are like the introduction. It's like the infer Verona of Romeo and Juliet. It just sets the stage. And one of the things that it does, starting with chapter 3, when things go sideways, when Adam and Eve intentionally choose a different path than the one that God has laid out, what we watch happen over the next handful of chapters is the, rep or the um, reverberations of that, the consequences of that. And so it doesn't stop with Adam and Eve's choice and consequences to them, but then they have two boys, and one of them murders the other one in a field. And it takes another loop, and it spirals further down. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, God looks at humanity, and he says uh, that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was always evil continuously. And it says this, and it grieved him. It grieved him. You see, for some of us, our view of God is too mechanical, too robotic, it, too karmic. We think of God as just being this force of justice in the universe that's just waiting for us to step out of line and then just reacts like a spring-loaded hammer. 
But that's not the God of the Bible. And the reason why this is important is twofold. One, if it's not a personal problem, then you'll never understand a personal salvation. Okay? But there's a second one. Oftentimes, because we just think of it in legal terms, sin's not really that big of a deal. It's just a moral code, maybe even one of many. It's just some view of the universe, and I have a different interpretation. It's just a set of rules. And that's why we can look at things in particular and go, what's it matter? I'm not hurting anybody. Right? Because it's removed from relationship. It's just something we do. Not something we do to other people. It doesn't change anything. It's a personal choice made in total autonomy, disconnected from the world around us, and that is always a lie. Just ask yourself this this morning. The last time you heard that phrase in the mouth of another person, it's not hurting anyone. Was it true? It never is. But when we objectify how we behave as just a list of do's and don'ts, of yeses and no's, of right and wrong, and we remove it from relationship, then we excuse it. Why is it such a big deal? The Bible lays out this God, the one that's being referred to here, as the loving creator of all that is. I want you to think of that phrase this morning, the loving creator. Okay? That means two things. It means that the instruments you use for sin aren't yours. They're given. Okay? And it also means the impact Whoever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is you impact, whoever it is you impact, also doesn't belong to you. God hates sin because it harms the creation that he loves. And God also hates sin because it is his creation that loves that's doing it. Every intentional, rebellious choice we make is not just something against the ego of an all-powerful being. It's something against the nature of our relationship. What are the sins that we have a hard time forgetting and forgiving? Is it the stranger that cuts you off? Or is it the family member who just said that one little thing? How do we weigh sin? We weigh it relationally. The closer it is, the more it hurts. The more we're likely to move to bitterness and unforgiveness. A guy can intentionally, in, an act, in a moment of road rage, cut you off and put your entire family's life at risk, and you will forget about it. But your uncle can make an offhanded remark that gets under your skin and you replay it, and you replay it, and you replay it. And that's the second thing we need to understand this morning, is the reconciliation that's being talked about, the alienation that's being talked about, is not God gathering up his toys and going home. The alienation that's being talked about here is not that God has gone away from us. 
It's not that God has actively chosen, you know what, I'm tired of this whole humanity thing. I'm going to go do something else. Now, maybe you don't actually think in that way, but practically, we think that way all the time. We assume that. When you start any sort of spiritual journey and you're looking for truth, you're looking for God, you're trying to discover God, you're pretty sure he's the one who's missing. He's the one who's hidden. He's the one who's distant. This is why it's so helpful to read and read and reread Genesis chapter 3. As soon as that relationship is broken between Adam and Eve and God, who's the one hiding and who's the one seeking? Who's the one lost and who's the one doing the finding? And when we read the story the Bible tells, and as we'll see this morning very quickly, that is different than we often think about it. We're frustrated that God is not involved in our lives, and it never occurs to us that we're the ones choosing to walk away. But that's effectively what sin is. This is how Isaiah puts it. He says, all we have gone astray, each one has gone his own way. So with that in mind, listen to what it says again in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. I want you to notice that that phrasing, once again, is personal. God is a person. Us is a person. Christ is a person. Reconciled is a personal action. And then notice how it's put in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So the second thing I want you to notice here is that this act of reconciliation is something that God has done. The alienation is something that we have done. We have intentionally walked away. We have chosen our own path. We have taken, even if you've never read the Bible, even if you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, there are times where you've taken what you know to be right and said, not today. Today I make the rules. Today I choose what's right for me. But the act of restoration, the act of reconciliation, that's something God has done. You see, this is another place we often get it wrong. Even if we come to religion, not just with a sense of a need for purpose or a sense of a need for meaning of making sense of life, but a sense of an actual need that there's something wrong with us. Generally, what do we look for? A way to set things right. A way to reconcile. We feel the distance from God. We experience the alienation. We know that there's some sort of bronze ceiling that our prayers just seem to bounce off of. There's something in the way. And we go, how can I move it? How can I lift it? Maybe I'll just try and be better. Maybe I'll, you know, we make up a list, a new righteousness, because we failed at the old one. We make a new righteousness and we try to religiously keep it. That's not what's being talked about here. Listen to these words again. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now here's another thing that's profound about this. It comes back to our catechism this morning on the Trinity. God reconciled us to whom? To himself. 
Usually what happens in reconciliation, we bring in a mediator, one to stand in between. Sometimes we even misunderstand Christianity this way. And so we read it like this. There's an angry and vindictive God who's just devoted to our destruction, and then Jesus comes along and somehow calms him down, sets it right, stands in the way and says, hey, 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 you know, who's doing the reconciling here? It's through Christ. We'll get to that in a second. But it is God who is reconciling through Christ to himself. He is the offended. He is the one who takes action. And he is the one who pays the cost of reconciliation. Listen, this is why the mystery of the Trinity is important. This is not merely God appointing Jesus as a sacrifice for us. This is God on the altar. Okay. God is the one who has been offended. God is the one who's offered to deal with that offense. God is the one through whom that offering that we are restored with. Okay. Let's look again at the way it's put in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I think that word was, was really, or is really important there. Okay. It's talking specifically about what God did in Jesus Christ, what you can read about in the Gospels. If you want to really dial it in, the focal point is the cross. Okay. This terrible death at the end of Jesus' ministry. And it says, through that event, God was reconciling to himself. And that word I want to emphasize again is was. This is something God has done, past tense. Now, as we'll see, the ministry of reconciliation, that's present tense. That's something God is doing. But the basis is finished. It's taken care of. It's done. This is what God has done. He has made reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 20. Therefore, because God has done this for the whole world's sake, because he has set right what was wrong, because he's taken the true and appropriate consequences of sin and taken them on himself. Okay. This idea of reconciliation is so much deeper than we often experience in human life. The usual way we make reparations in life is to belittle sin, to downplay it, to ignore it, to try and forget and forgive, whatever that means. Okay. And so we come to a relationship, something goes wrong, and what somebody says, whether there's a sorry or not, sometimes there is, what the other person says is, it's all right. It's not a big deal. It's different with God. For God to be righteous, holy, just, the Bible proclaims over and over again, he can't overlook sin. He can't ignore it. He can't look the other way. And if you, want to, if you want evidence of that, if you want proof of that, the cross of Christ is the evidence of that. It shows us the seriousness of sin and the uh, requirement of consequence. Jesus says something really weird 
in the hours leading up to his crucifixion, when he's praying in the garden. He says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's looking ahead, and that prayer isn't answered because there is no other way. This is the path. This is the way that's fixed. But what does he mean by the cup? If you read the Psalms, if you read Jeremiah, if you read Isaiah, there's only one the cup, and that's the cup of God's wrath. That's what scares Jesus about the cross. It's not the physical suffering. It's bearing the full separation of sin. This Jesus who always did the things that pleased the Father, who was in perfect communion with the Father, whose greatest prayer for the church in John chapter 17 is that they would be in me and I in them, just as I am in the Father and he is in me. Communion, eternal, consistent, constant love. But in the cross of Christ, he takes the full cup of God's wrath. Listen to the way it's put here in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? There's other things we would expect to be written here. If you're familiar with the language of Christianity, you go, okay, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be a sinner. That's not what it says. It says to be sin. It sounds like a typo. It makes you want to check the Greek and go, wait, what's going on here? That can't be what he's saying. But that's the thing. The way Paul says this, there's no other way to translate that. And some have gone, well, maybe he's doing what we see in the Hebrew, where the word for sin and the word for sin offering, you know, this sacrificial lamb that's called for in Leviticus, is the same word. But it's not. We know that because other people in the New Testament use that word, and they use a different Greek word. And Paul's very consistent with this word. This is just the word he generally uses for sin. What is he saying here? Okay, let's deal with the first half here that it points out, as does the New Testament, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Him who knew no sin. No internal reality of sin in his own life. No sin nature, as it were. But on the cross, he made him sin. Now, I think one of the reasons why this is said specifically is so that there'd be no confusion that God didn't make Jesus a sinner. Okay. And I think this is important because, just as a side note, how we sometimes operate as a church is we think, okay, the best way to introduce other people to Jesus is to be like them. And so we we compromise and we sacrifice on morals and we bend the rules and we do these things and we go, okay, we'll just be sinners like them and that, no, that's not what's happening here. It's something different. When it says here that God made Jesus sin, we're speaking of something mysterious. We're speaking of something profound. It's as if the weight of all humanity's sin, the entire reality of it, was given to Jesus and then judged. But that sin was alien. It wasn't his. It found no soil in him. I was reading a great book by a Puritan this week, and he said that Jesus was tempted, just like all of us are. 
but that temptation was like sparks over the sea. Found no place to light. Unlike us, we're just dry wood. There's a part of us in our nature that's already smoldering and smoking, and so sparks just add to the fire, but not for Jesus. So he takes this on him alien, outside himself, fully and willingly. And so notice the consequence there at the end of 21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how that's parallel? Not so that in him we might become righteous. It's not... Jesus became a sinner, so we as sinners might become righteous people. No, it's so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's alien righteousness. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't, it's not something we can take credit for. In the same way that God imparted to Jesus sin that was ours and not his, so also through Jesus God imparts to us his own righteousness that's not ours. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. And I would say that's probably an understatement. Right? The great exchange is something you'd, you'd look at a coupon and go, oh, the store made a mistake. I'm going to take advantage of this. This is something so much deeper than that. And at the same time, it's not necessarily a depth that we can plumb. The bottom line we have to recognize here is that Christ was sufficient for salvation. That every ounce you feel of guilt, God has dealt with in Jesus Christ. That every sin that you excuse, God has dealt with in Jesus Christ. That every sin that you ignorantly don't realize you're doing because it's just that deep in your habits, you can't even see because that's one of the things that sin does. It blinds. God has dealt with in Jesus Christ. And here's a hard one. That every sin that was done against you, that is done against you, that will be done against you, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all of it. Now get the profoundness of this. He uses the word here for ambassadors. He says, because of this reality, we are ambassadors for Christ Jesus. Okay? Now that's a significant metaphor. What Paul is saying is that his life on earth is to represent another place. That's what an ambassador does, right? If we wanted to make a really quick difference, an ambassador is the exact opposite of a tourist. A tourist comes to a country to enjoy and get everything out of that country before they go home. An ambassador comes to a country to represent his home. Okay? And so it's, we'll come back to this in a second. It's significant that he refers to us this morning as ambassadors. But the thing I want to point, to you, point out to you this morning is once again a profound difference in what we're talking about. And here it is. Okay. Where is Paul writing this letter? Okay. Who knows, right? We do know. It doesn't matter. The point is, you draw a big enough circle and you're going to say Rome. Okay. He's writing during the Pax Romana, during the height of Roman power. Okay. So when Paul says ambassadors, who's he thinking of? The ambassadors of Rome? No, Rome doesn't have ambassadors. When they're dealing with another country, they either send an army or a governor. It's those nations that send an ambassador. Rome was a conqueror. And then afterwards, they went, we better send a representative to be close to the Caesar so that we have some sort of say in our lives so we can appeal to Caesar's better side. Do you hear the opposite of that this morning? 
He doesn't say we're ambassadors from earth pleading before God and saying, look, we know that you're all powerful, but please. No, it's God, the one who was offended. The one we rebelled against who sends an ambassador. Think of this for a second at the international level. This is like the South seeding from the Union. And Abraham Lincoln sending people in and pleading with them to come back. God responds to human rebellion not with an army, but with a sacrifice. Now, I think it's important we recognize here this morning, and this is just a side note, but when he says, therefore, we are ambassadors, he's specifically speaking of the apostles. That's who he means by this we here. We are ambassadors. Why? Because Jesus literally and physically tapped them on the shoulder and said, you speak for me. That's what's so significant for the Corinthian church because they distanced themselves from Paul. They, by nature, distanced themselves from Jesus. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. What would it be like if a nation saw an ambassador coming in and goes, oh man, I really don't like that guy. You can't, you can't come into our country. That's why he's using this language. But it does have application for us. There's a recognition here that if we have become recipients of reconciliation, then we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. In fact, notice as it continues on here. Look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him. He sees himself as a co-worker with God. This is important too. The idea here is not that God has looked at the church and gone, okay, now you set things right. Not that God goes, okay, I've paid for it, now you have the ministry of reconciliation. No, the ministry is God's. He just invites us into it. Working together with God, what does he say? We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, we appeal to you. Look again. At verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, or for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, that word for appeal in both places is sometimes translated to beg or to persuade. It's an emotional term. The idea here is that when Paul says, be reconciled to God, that is God speaking through Paul. Here's why this is significant. God's heart of reconciliation is not filled full just with the act of the cross of Christ, but is still calling, still inviting, still begging. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than this idea of the God who begs. And as we see here, that's not out of need. It's on our behalf. God is actively working If you're a Christian this morning, think of it this way. How many things took place for you to become a Christian? You trace that line long enough through conversations and through people, and then you trace that line through their conversations and people, and you trace that line. Remember here that you are 2,000 years removed from this event and the other side of the world. How is it that you were reconciled unto God? 
It is an un unbroken chain of this ministry of reconciliation. God didn't just do it in a corner and say, it's here to be found. He didn't just throw it in a book. He activated a people and filled them with their spirit and has been proactively pursuing a world that has rejected him. I want you to hear the heart of God here. And so he says, verse 1 again of chapter 6, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, this is where it gets personal. This is where it touches the Corinthians in particular. When he's worried about them taking this gift in an empty manner, that's what it means to receive grace in vain, to somehow have this gift in front of them and reject it, he specifically has the Corinthian church in mind. But what does it mean not to receive the grace of God in vain? I think there's a few things it can mean. Like I talked about, this ministry of reconciliation, this unbroken chain that overflows from this climactic crucifixion of Jesus Christ, taking care of everything that was needed, not merely a demonstration of God's love, but an actual loving act, doing something, not just showing God's heart, but accomplishing something on our behalf. And then through word and word and mouth and mouth and unbroken chain all the way here, it's kind of like a package. Imagine somebody sends you a package. What does it go through to get to you? How many hands does it pass through? How many places is it processed? For some of us, the packages that have come to us are more well-traveled than we are. They fly, and they get on boats, and they travel by car, and then somebody personally grabs it, walks through your neighborhood, and sets it on your porch. It's a gift. It's just sent to you. It was carried by other people's labor and industry at someone else's cost to your doorstep. Receiving the grace of God in vain is to see it there and not open it. What else can God do to set things right than everything? But there is a part that God will not and cannot do. He will not receive it for you. Receiving the grace of God in vain is familiarity with Christianity, with the offer sitting right there. Like that old song that I like from Cake, Jesus wrote a blank check, one I haven't cashed just yet. I hope there's still time. But there's other ways that we can receive the grace of God in vain. Paul in 1 Corinthians specifically uses this phrase, speaking of his own life and saying, by the grace of God I am what I am, not that his grace was empty, for I labored more abundantly than them all, not, not me, but the grace that was in me. So what is he saying there about grace in vain? It's the recognition that what God offers us in Jesus Christ has total and complete application in our daily life. And so we can receive part of it and then just stop pull up short, not experience the fullness of what God has for us, accept forgiveness and not enjoy the fatherhood of God, accept that he deals with our guilt and the, the biggest need in our life and not bring to him the smallest needs in our life and say, God, I needed you to fix this big issue, but I'm going to fix the rest myself. 
Receiving the grace of God in vain is not allowing this reality to change you, to transform you. And there's another one that I think is worth mentioning. And this doesn't so much invalidate the gift as it does demonstrate that the gift remains unopened. But you cannot live a life of hostility and alienation from other people and say that you have a loving and close relationship with God. Jesus always kept close together, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul in Galatians says this is the greatest commandment that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And we go, wait, shouldn't love God come first? Well, in a sense, yes, but the other never flows without it. It never happens that way. John asks this question. He says, why do you say you love God who you've never seen when you do not love your brother who you see every day? This is why there's a connection between this reconciliation and racial reconciliation. You cannot be an ambassador of God's reconciliation and a demonstrative representative of the greatness of your own nation, ethnicity, culture, tongue, race. You want to know why Martin Luther's King, King's dreams were so big? It's because they were built on this foundation. You cannot say that I am greater or more mighty or more right or more powerful or more loved by God if you understand this passage. And you cannot continue to fight in the wars of the kingdoms of this world if you understand this reconciliation. And we need to be careful of this. When he says here, his desire is that we not receive the grace of God in vain, one of the things that demonstrates that is that when we're unwilling to extend that grace to others. Isn't that what Jesus says? Doesn't he say so in his parable about the man who is forgiven a great debt and then throttles another servant for a very small debt? Right? We cannot experience forgiveness and not forgive. And we cannot experience reconciliation and not seek to reconcile. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Because as we see here, God is the great peacemaker. Look at verse 2. For he says, he quotes here from the book of Isaiah and from a place that's very important. There are four places in Isaiah in the later chapters that speak of this one to come, the servant. We call them the servant songs, okay? They culminate in Isaiah 53, which is basically 500 years prior to the coming of Jesus, an exposition of the cross of Christ. But this is one of the earlier ones in chapter 49. Notice what it says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Now, that's actually God's words to the servant. These, if you will, are God's words to Jesus. But Paul shows their importance here, and he does this throughout his ministry. I said earlier he sees himself as the mouthpiece of God. He constantly ties himself to the servant of Isaiah. His ministry is Christ's ministry. Isaiah is about Christ, therefore it's about Paul. And he's doing that here again. His appeal, his implore comes from this reality. In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I've helped you. Listen to his application. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What is he saying? 
He's saying what God was going to do in Jesus Christ was going to be the favorable time. The day of salvation. And he says, it's here. Now. I love that the Bible refers to it as the day of salvation. Why? Because if it was the month or the week or the year or the epic of salvation or the age of Aquarius or any of these things, we would delay See, the reason why it matters that it's today and why it's now is because that's the only place you live. Tomorrow is a non-existent reality. It's a way that we conceptually talk about possibilities but not realities. You will never see tomorrow. If you see anything that resembles tomorrow, it'll actually be today. Here's the point. He's appealing to the Corinthian church to set things right now. Because that's all that God has given. But it's enough. It's sufficient. If you're not a Christian this morning, I think this is a very good window into what we believe and what we're talking about. Not merely the setting of the record straight, but the restoration of a relationship with the God of love. But I do want to point something out. That if Christianity is true, then rejecting this you have to understand in these terms as well it's rejecting reconciliation when God has gone I don't even want to say to great lengths that doesn't sell it right doesn't explain it right to the greatest lengths done everything possible started the process of reconciliation bore the full burden of it anointed people to carry forward that message, brought you to this very place this morning, as it were, and begged, pleaded, be reconciled. God has done the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling, and yet, he still begs you to be reconciled. When we reject Christ, when we reject God, we're not just rejecting a system of thought. We're not just rejecting a truth or a falsehood or a belief system or a religion. If it's true, we're re-rejecting God. But it doesn't have to be that way. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, this is what you've been invited into. You're not an ambassador like Paul is, but you are an ambassador. You're a pilgrim. Your purpose here on this earth is bound up in the ministry of God. Here's another mistake I think we make. We think that what a relationship with God looks like is I invite God into my life to do my stuff. Is that what we see in this passage? Is that how it pans out? Is that how it works out? Is God just your helper, counselor, healer, friend? He's all those things. But he's enlisted you into his workforce. He's invited you into his ministry. He's saved you to be a part of the process of the saving of the world. Don't receive that gift in vain. And I'll say it again. I know I've said it so many times in the last six months because it's been eating me alive. A life lived in light of this is not a regrettable life. At the end of your life, you will experience the profound blessings that Jesus said 
It's more blessed to give than to receive. Happy are the peacemakers because they are the children of God. Let's pray. Father, one of the things we see about evil at its broadest level is how when we objectify it and reduce it down to issues and problems and options, when we impersonalize it, we excuse it. And so we think of a holocaust as just a problem solving. I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to feel the reality of the personal strain of our personal sin. How it hurts and harms not just those around us, but like David says, against you and you only have I sinned. That it's an affront to the living God who graciously gave us life and is the giver of all good things and has laid out his law, not arbitrarily, but because this is the way life works best. And yet we scorn you, we reject you. Like the people of Israel in Isaiah 48, we have this iron sinew neck that stubbornly resists your will. And I thank you, Lord, that you looked at that and you compassionately did something about it. From the foundations of the earth, you had a plan to bring about salvation. And we live in a period of time that you call the day of salvation, the acceptable time. And you invite us not merely out of our own sin and misery, but into relationship as it was meant to be with the living God and with one another. And you did this through our own wickedness on the cross of Christ. continue to reflect and to pray if you're led to read Isaiah 53 if the band wants to come up we'll just roll right into worship Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they've not heard they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the art of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us 
peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. <clears throat> 